When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash Media. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Moriarty of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? The sixth member. The sixth member. Look at th- Whoa. Watch out. Watch out. Just realizing a little judo, taekwondo, tempo, kempo. Ta- I'm sorry. It's kempo, taekwondo. That's what I took when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I want to talk to that. I, I, I want to talk to that in the episode. I have, to, I have to pick your brain about various martial arts. I'm realizing my glasses are on. My glasses are reserved for work. Not the podcast. Now, Kyle, I do have this delicious cup of coffee, though. Yeah. Which I usually don't do the coffee thing during the pod. But yeah. I was just, you know, I don't even know if you realize as a non-coffee drinker yourself how how vital. Is that in the shot? Yeah, there it is. I love dad. Does that yeah. mean I love dad? Does that mean the yeah, kids? That, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That That's pretty ambiguous. Right. I don't know. Could mean everything. They love right. dad. I love dad. Who knows? Someone loves someone loves dad. Someone loves a dad, <laughs> which is nice. I have to take a yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a coffee guy. I, I don't mind it. When I used to go to restaurants, which I really don't do anymore, but I used to really go to restaurants all the time. Yeah, I used to drink espresso or a an Irish coffee like with dessert. Oh, dessert. That okay, was, I was going to say, but that was about. Meal. Yeah, no, no, that was about because I would always drink an old fashioned or three or four of those with with the meal with the meal. So a little liquor with your meal. I, I right, but I, I do drink. A, I do drink a can of Pepsi every day. And I wonder if there is some sort of caffeine thing in there just somewhere. One I like can. my Pepsi. Just one case. Sometimes two, but okay. if I pour the second glass, I usually dump most of it out. It's because I just want like a little bit more. Okay. You know? Okay. Because I just do my little, you know, I like, but I, I feel like a Coke or a Pepsi with a meal is like, that's my oh, shit. Oh, you know, it's that. so crazy that that's what you're talking about. Because that's what I was just thinking. I was brewing. I, I text you, give me a couple extra minutes. I just want to brew a cup of coffee downstairs. And I'm thinking as I'm fixing, I don't know why. Uh, maybe I've even mentioned this during the podcast before, but like I feel like you go out to eat with dad, right? Especially to the diner. We talked about this before, I think. Mm. He gets a cup of coffee with his meal. He'll get like a big salad, like a chef salad or whatever he right. gets, a burger, whatever he gets. He's always got the cup of coffee, which I always growing up as a kid, especially thought it was very strange. It's like, how are you going to go to the diner and get like this all American meal, a burger, whatever, chicken sandwich, and then tuna, whatever, even breakfast, right? How are you not going to get the fountain soda, right? It's like he gets the cup of coffee, especially with dinner. I always found it odd. But then I crossed that that age, I think, gap where I was like, then I started doing it. It's like I get I get the burger 
or the patty melt, whatever. And then it had to had to be the cup of coffee alongside that. And then I was then I realized like that's probably the mark of getting to be old. Right. So if you're doing that out there, and I don't mean to call you guys and girls old, but if you're getting a cup of coffee with your meal that really is like more appropriate for a beverage or like a soft drink. Yeah, you're old. You're getting pretty old. You're old. Because well, I always I always say that my, my classic old person or the classic old person McDonald's meal is the hamburger, not a cheeseburger, a hamburger, a small fry, and a small coffee. That's like, you know, like the, that's like the 80-year-old the in the corner meal. <laughs> that really is. You know, hamburger and the white wrapper, not the yellow wrapper. Small fry in the paper. The white the, wrapper. The I feel like and nobody the, gets Small that. coffee. You're yeah. absolutely correct. By the way, yeah. what happened with McDonald's with breakfast all day? They, they don't do it anymore, you mean? No, they stopped. Oh, they stopped? I think they stopped during COVID at some point because it was mm. just too much. I guess COVID being just too much in general is like breakfast all day is like a, we, we could barely do this during non-COVID. Like we right, were right, barely right. hanging on. So I remember like going like it was so nice. Like you could go like, you know, you always had that thing. Like, look at the watch. Like it's 1045. I'm never going to make it there for the. Right, right. And you never really know if you're going to get there in time or if you're going to annoy them. And they're not trying. And they were not trying to go over that line, that time limit. Right. So you want your Egg McMuffin, then you couldn't get it. So it was like, oh, 2 o'clock, you'd roll in, get the Egg McMuffin. Always a little bit of an attitude, I felt like. 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, Egg McMuffin. 7 o'clock p.m. Egg McMuffin. They weren't. They would do it. They weren't happy about it. And and I think they wanted to make sure you knew they weren't really quite happy about it. Like, we put that away for the day. Like, we have a McDonald's here, Kyle. I'm going off on a tangent, but who cares? No, it's all We have a McDonald's here, our local McDonald's. Yeah, they do this thing where, and it's definitely a thing. Like, I've experienced this enough times now to know this is unmistakable. If you go past, like, 8.30 at night, the milkshake machine is broken. It's not broken. They just cleaned it ahead of time because they want to get this the is hell like out a, of It's it. like a meme, right? Isn't that like a meme online? Is that a that thing? The, 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 I, think, I think you should look into this, that the ice cream machines in McDonald's are always broken. Like... You should look into this. I think this might be something. It gets I don't really to the know point where I go to McDonald's after 8.30, and if I'm so psyched if they say I could get a milkshake after 8, 8.30, you know, 8.45, whatever. Because I know, I, and I feel like saying, look, I know, you're, I know that's not true. And I know you're not going to give it to me, but I just want you to know, I know that that's, that it's right, not right. broken. You, I know, know, I mean? you know that I know, right. <laughs> and that's what's important. I, I totally understand. I, I must say, I don't know if I've remarked this, but Mike and I talk about this a lot because we go to McDonald's maybe once a week or once every 10 days or something. Okay. But there's a there's a McDonald's near our house that I would argue is maybe the best McDonald's I've ever been in. Really? I've never what actually been this? in, but been to. It is just, you know, like, we've talked about this on the show. Yeah. But after, when you start going to repeated specific restaurants, like specific fast food sure, restaurants, you start sure. to realize if they're like a good representation of that restaurant or not. And we've talked about the scale of scarcity, right? And in, in finding the proper restaurant. Like, yeah. the Burger King in dover new hampshire when i was a kid was the burger king that i've been into that was like a real burger king and i feel like the mcdonald's on hull street in chesterfield is the mcdonald's that i've been to where first of all it's always packed they have like the two lines going okay right like and the fries are always hot the food is always good the orders are always right they're kind and nice and it's interesting because McDonald's, it does taste the same everywhere. But if you go to the McDonald's in JFK, you're going to have a very different experience than if you go to the McDonald's down here. Absolutely. In Chesterfield. So, right, right. So I just, 
I've been really enamored with this idea of continuing on the idea of like the perfect iteration of the restaurant and how that I've been in. There are specifically Wendy's and, and Burger Kings I can think of where I'm like, it makes me want to throw up. Thinking about these places. <laughs> I can think of a few of those, too, actually. In Santa Monica, there was a Wendy's that was disgusting. There was a couple Burger Kings in San Francisco that were disgusting. Everything's disgusting in San Francisco. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's so funny. Uh, you yeah. remind me of the Burger King down in Manhattan, the South Street Seaport, downtown. Very touristy area. Gorgeous part of the city, right? Just horrifyingly awful. Burger King like you would think it would be play up a little more to the touristy you know right by the fish market and everything oh dude it's so yeah so that that definitely strikes a chord Burger King is too sophisticated to go to a bad Burger King like I don't mean this in any ironic way it is not it's a flame broiled thing on like a, a belt it just seems like it's a little more thoughtful right of a, of a, of a, yeah. a than the McDonald's thing yeah and so I think it requires a little more attention but when you and the toppings are known to be fresh, Fresher, like the Whopper. Yeah. There's yeah. like no corollary of the Whopper. The Whopper is awesome. But if you get a bad Whopper, it is so risky to order a Whopper. I agree. And that's where I can't um, I can't abide by that. So when I find the place that I like, yeah, I just keep going to it over and over and over again because it's too it's too risky to, to go out there because I'm too I eat once a day. If I have a bad go at it, I either have to break my fast which is fine i break fast like once a week or so or yeah because i have to you really should or you have to just kind of be like oh this meal sucked this is a waste of calories i really do look at it like that so i just start going to the same there's this barbecue place we keep going to down here now getting it delivered on doordash and we're like oh, obsessed nice. with it because it's another similar thing where it is so good is it you a chain which one? It. it's a small chain q barbecue it's called okay yeah, it, there's okay. one by mom and one by me actually, okay which is funny yeah Nice, dude. Yeah, and yeah, you know so what? You that down, also gets it. into other things too. Like, do you go to Bur you're you're craving the Whopper? Do you go to Burger King late night, like graveyard shift, like disgruntled, like they don't want to work that shift? Well, maybe they do. You know, I don't want to I don't want to pigeonhole anybody, but that's another thing too. Like, you go to Burger King, like you're saying, like a busy fast food chain. At a certain hour, they got it's a well oiled machine. They got all the little league soccer moms, whatever, coming in at a certain time around dinner after school, but before it's too late. You know, you have that whole thing. But then maybe you go five hours later. Is it going to be the same, the same thing? Maybe they're not as prepared. They think they don't have to make a certain thing at a certain. Like, who's going to get a fillet of fish at eleven thirty? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it gets into I all totally kinds understand. of iterations. I mean, this is a whole topic. And this gets back full circle to your query about where breakfast went. Ironically. Where did breakfast go, McDonald's? So I need my egg well, McMuffins, and I'm not trying to go there too early. I totally understand that. I I was starting to do some weird shit with the breakfast at McDonald's. You know, like starting to get starting to get a little crazy with the combinations, which probably also wasn't wasn't <laughs> thrilling to them. Um, well, nothing really interesting in my my life. Yeah, going I was going to ask what's happening this week. I I have a sm I'm building a small group of people around me. Not people around me but people i'm working with that i actually like like uh in around my house uh, like the guy that did my landscaping not my landscaper because i do my own like mowing you but the guy it. that like did the landscaping okay and then the person that's now keeping up the landscaping and okay. all of this okay and uh you know i'm finding a good rhythm with some of these people but i wonder if they find me annoying sometimes because i i uh, i don't think they do but I have a really good rapport with some of these people, and one of the people is no known as Doctor Something or whatever because it was a long care service. Oh, okay, got and, it. But he is like a PhD of whatever he does. Oh shit! And um, so I've been referring to him as the other to the other landscaper as the good doctor. <laughs> That's amazing. 
That's a bit like straight faced. Like you're not even yeah, like, like I'm like the good doctor says that, uh, you know, he was, I said, I think I said something like the good doctor is very complimentary of your work. Yeah. I'll say this. If this guy that you're talking to gets you, this is the kind of guy you want in your life. If like, if yeah. he thinks that's funny, even maybe to a level of like knowing you're being funny, appreciating it, but not really kind of being on the same wavelength of not acknowledging that you're being funny. So he's just as funny. You stay with that guy. That's that's he's he's of your tribe. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. So I totally agree. I totally agree. Like I found really some bad companies down here, but some really good ones, too. So I want to give a, 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 a quick shout out to Well, I said before, like the first company I worked here that I really liked and had like a good relationship with was Richmond Security. They were awesome. OK, um, that's who did. The, they were like uh, really nice people. And uh, they're like a private security company that like does, you know, security setups. Yeah, that's not cool. like your you're ring. So I did that with them. And then, yeah, this uh, this landscaping company called Hudgens down here. Okay. Really nice people. Really nice people. You know, family run. And uh, now I'm doing my long care with Dr. Vaughn. Do- good doctor. Good doctor. Let me ask and you that's, this. That's, yeah, Dr. Vaughn. You the good and, doctor. I yeah. think I know the answer to this, but you and Mike, uh, do you have a ha- uh, somebody to come in and clean your house every three weeks, every month, whatever? No, no, no. I, I clean. You house. guys clean. Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to ask how your rapport was no, with I them. Clean. I can't we, can't. we haven't gotten the house cleaned in a while. We've been trying to do yeah. it. But we like to do, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, it's nice if you get someone in every three weeks, we're busy, you know what I mean, type of thing. We're fortunate in that, you know, enough to be able to do that sometimes. And, but I can't, they all have the same rhythm. They come, they sell themselves. It's, you know, it's very like, um, they set the bar very high. They come right. the first two or three times, awesome job. And then it starts to get, you know, like worse, worse. and worse. Right, 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 right. And worse. It's like they miss this whole spot where, to the point where it's like, they didn't even vacuum half this carpet. Like it gets like every time. Right. So we can't find someone who's consistent. But at the same time, I don't want to be a nudge because did I ever tell you that we're not, we got to get into the topic, but there's my friend that I work with in, in, in the animation world in New York has this horrific story. He had a cleaning lady and I could see this because this guy, I love him, but he could be a bit of a ball buster. He pissed off the cleaning lady so bad that he had this like blockage in his pipes, like his toilets wouldn't flush, his sinks were backing up all at the same time. And he, he couldn't realize what it was. Finally found out, went into the basement. He's kind of a handy guy. Went into the basement and figured out, dude, they had been flushing. The, the, the cleaning people had been flushing washcloths down his toilet. <laughs> and he said he opened up the, like, the main and just a clump of washcloths fell out. It were blo- because they were, being, they were pissed. And they were, that, that was their little dig of being vindictive and saying, fuck you. So I'm, I always think of that story because I'm always like, I don't want to be like... You know, come here, like, sometimes there's a language barrier. We had Polish people, then we had some nice Ecuadorian people, but they don't speak great English oftentimes. So right. you want to, and you want to be making sure you're not being bossy. You're trying to be sensitive. Like, okay, look, like maybe hit this, you know, dust this, so, you know, don't forget to hit this piece, you know, what I mean, type of thing. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mortified. So we just let them go, you know, and then we get the yeah. next one in and it's the same pattern over and over. Yeah, you again. gotta, you gotta nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud yeah. is one thing. It's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. But here's the thing with cleaning people. First of all, dad had Polish cleaning people, too. And I wonder if like a lot of Polish immigrants fall into that line. Nice of people. That's interesting. They were. Yeah. They were great. Yeah. They we were also Polish... like, please don't give us checks. Like, <laughs> please. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Please, God. 
<laughs> we can't do the check thing. This cash, please. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been, dude, that was like my landlord in San Francisco. We were paying him <laughs> fucking cash. Greg and I used to pay him in person together just in case he ever tried to act like we didn't pay him. There was well, like a to take a picture with the cell phone. Well, yeah, like it was just like both <laughs> of us would it. go together. It was everyone knew he knew that's Smart. why we were going together. Smart. We were giving him the cash, and we would give him a thousand dollar check because that was like his like, yeah, I, I charge a thousand dollars for this apartment. And then I'm like, here's two thousand dollars in cash or more than that. Wow. You know, it's like, yeah, so it would be two versus one if there was ever Johnson, some sort of argument. Son of a bitch. Yeah, he was. I liked him a lot actually. He was just a curmudgeonly old Chinese man. Wow, he's a landlord. But I'd, I'm slowly turning into a commercially old Chinese man myself, so it's no, there's no... <laughs> yes, you are. Speaking he was like a great... He, actually, Johnson was probably like one of the great influences on my life. Like, that guy was... That what guy was, was me name? to a T. And fi- his name was Johnson Ho. That was his name. That's amazing. It's the best name And uh, he lived upstairs. He owned the building. He was a really nice old man. He, he, actually, it's kind of sad because right when I moved in with Bromley, which is how I moved into that place, his wife had just died. I met uh, his wife when I, when I got permission to move in, I met her oh, and then wow. that was it. And she, Happened so quick. I was catching him at a bad time. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like no, no doubt about that. That's nice. But, we old, but I lived, but I lived there for like seven years or something like that. And we okay. slowly grew to have like a rapport and I'd like take the garbage out for him and all this kind of stuff. Okay. Like, I think I said this story, whatever. It's totally non sequitur, but he was like the guy that had the random Russian man living in the garage. Like the entire time I lived in this building, <laughs> there was just like a, an illegal in-law which was were all over San Francisco, built into the garage, and it was just like a closet, basically, with like a stall shower and a bed, and it was just this random Russian dude that lived there. And wow. we called him the Russian. We had no idea who he was. We referred to him as the Russian. Wow. And he lived there before I moved in. He was there when I left. I and it uh, was like KGB, like covert. That's 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 cool of me, right? Like Russian automatically, he's KGB. Yeah, like, automatically. Super yeah, cool he, digging, Johnson's right? Johnson. Maybe he was in the C. Maybe he was a fucking card carrying communist. Digging wants you to say it. <laughs> Not Johnson. Oh, no, he was one of us. No, he was. So anyway, I don't know what we're talking about. Let's get into the the topic at hand, Dagan. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home. And then there's a version of it where you have someone help you. You watch them do it the right way. And you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. (laughs) I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. It's Kill Bill Volume 1, the 2003 Quentin Tarantino classic film. Supposed to be one film, but ends up being split into two. Obviously, the next one comes out the following year. Mm -hmm. Starring Uma Thurman. I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I think I saw this movie when it came out, and that was probably it. 
in the beginning of it, it I, I I remarked to Micah because we were watching it together. She had never seen it. I was like, I think I already know why I really didn't care for this movie. Yeah, because it's so combat oriented. And as we say over and over again, I'm like, I'm just not into the combat thing. But the way the movie starts is quite deceiving because in getting through that Vivica Fox scene, it actually turned, it kind of reminded me of Scream a little bit, actually, in a weird way, where Scream has that Drew Barrymore scene in the beginning that's just totally severed from the rest of the film. Yes, that's right. And and it's just like Drew Barrymore in the first 10 or 15 minutes, and that's it. And then and then it goes into the, what the movie actually is. Remind me a little bit of that structure. And what I ended up finding was a quite a pleasant movie that's fun to watch, doesn't really make any sense mostly because we don't have the whole story classic Tarantino and two thoughts that I wanted to bounce off of you as I throw it over to you. The first is, and I wrote this down. This is exactly what I say. I say it's a video game movie without the video game license. That's number one. So great point. This movie feels like a video game. I know that he probably wasn't inspired by them. I assume he was inspired by Westerns like he always is, maybe comic books and stuff like that. But this to me is a video game movie without being based on a video game. And I really like that aspect of it. And the second part is that even though this movie is so obviously inspired by a bunch of things that I don't understand because I'm not a film guy, I feel like I know Tarantino's body of work well enough. In fact, I think I've seen all of his movies now, except for Kill Bill Volume 2, which we'll talk about that. His style, though it borrows from so many others, isn't of itself its own style. And I know that a lot of people that know more about film watch this movie and are like, oh, man, look at the Kurosawa or look at whatever, sure, whatever he's sure. inspired yeah. by. But to me, I'm like, look at the Tarantino. You know, like that's. That to me, it's like the the combination of avant garde structure and violence, sudden violence, which is his calling card, which I love when things yeah. become violent out of nowhere, be which is always really fun. So there's a lot to say about this film and. I'm curious why you wanted to choose it. It was one of your choices and also what you think of it, what your experience with it was back in the day and how you feel about it today. Tarantino's film four. Yeah, that's right. It is his fourth film. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he had other things in there Four rooms, I think from dusk till dawn. Um, what else did he have? Well, oh, he calls Natural it his fourth Killers, film, right? Which he was a part of, but it yeah, was, he calls this his projects. Right. right. They, he calls this in the credits his fourth film. I yeah, no, it is actually yeah. his fourth film that he wrote, directed, co-created and all that kind of stuff. Although he was a part of other things. So interesting, so interesting to think it was 2003 and 2004 with part two and that it was only his fourth film and he had made such a huge name for himself already in Hollywood and just as a household name, you know, just like a pop culture icon already. I love what you said, first of all, about it being a video game because this is very appropriate for a video game. It's the perfect model for what a good game would be, right? You have a hero that you could get behind, a revenge story. I would argue a very justified revenge story, very skillful martial arts based and vastly outnumbered by the bad guys so it's like a perfect boss battles right it's like a perfect model for a video game and i love what you said too about quentin tarantino sort of being like this a lot like kevin smith oddly enough just like kevin smith on a higher level like sort of works from his influences and his influences are so unapologetic and embedded in what he does it's sort of a pastiche of everything he loves as a film buff, especially like, you know, French New Wave, all the genres, spaghetti western, film noir, black exploitation, vintage Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films, Grindhouse, of course, like crime drama, whatever he's incorporating. But it is odd in that it, it, it becomes his own thing. And I think there's a lot to say about that because of his sort of visual prowess and also his writing his extreme, extreme talent at writing, especially writing interaction between characters, dialogue and stuff. He's just 
one of the best in the business at that. So even though it's like this pastiche of everything he loves, it still becomes his own thing. And I love Kill Bill. I mean, there's so much to say about it. This has been on the list since day one. It'll be nice to talk about Tarantino again. We've already done Django. We've done uh, Inglorious Bastards. So now to have another conversation, of course, Pulp Fiction will eventually get to. But Kill Bill Volume 1, dude, I remember like I was trying to channel the excitement and the enthusiasm circa 2003 because this film was all over our radar with trailers. And then I was go- I went back on YouTube and was like, let me see if I could see the, the trailer and sort of get a, 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 some sort of remembrance of like how it felt when this was coming out and the excitement. And it, it's actually the teaser trailer. The other theatrical trailers, that first teaser that came out with the theme song and with the edited scenes, there's a lot of scenes that actually were cut out of both films. And at this time, it was probably in the editing process too, like there were, there's stuff that turned out to be in volume two that are in the trailer for volume one. So it's really interesting. And I just remembered, you know, it just ignited that excitement again, seeing it on the big screen. I remember 2003 being there in the theater with Helene, seeing it and just it being like a real joyful experience, you know, which we'll get into. And I think a lot of that is like, it felt to me like Pulp Fiction blended with like a martial arts film, like a Kung Fu film. And at that time we were already digging like the Stephen Chow films, like Kung Fu Hustle, but especially like all the Jet Li stuff, all the Hong Kong wire Kung Fu stuff that was coming out, Crouching Tiger, House of Flying Daggers. Like that was the period where all this stuff was like, you know, hero, we were digging all that stuff. So it was like the perfect timing. In fact, it was kind of weird, like that Jet Li was kind of missing from this project, I feel like. And we'll get into Sonny Chiba and Gordon Liu and everything. But yeah, man, I mean, that's a, that's a fair place to start. And you know what the other thing that struck me initially in watching this again? You know, I just really kind of like ritualized at this time. You know, I waited for the kids to go to bed, grabbed a couple of cold beers, sat down with a movie I know I was going to enjoy again. And it's so layered, like you get something out of it every time. But I remembered, of course, like it's a Tarantino joint, so it's like a visual feast. But what was a surprise and what I was reminded of was the music. Like the way music is integrated into the film and the way it punctuates moments and set pieces and stuff. It's so like, think about Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown too. Like the, the initial three films before this, they did the same thing. And I think this just took it to a whole nother level. It's just the, the music is, is a character in this film. And I was so Absolutely. like delighted to be reminded of that. So cool. It is a great reminder and a great, well said. It's interesting because when this came out, I was going into college, I think. And so I was kind of getting out of that phase where I was seeing a lot of movies. That was like a high school thing for me. And I also wasn't a Tarantino person. Like that was meaningless to me in 2003, 2004, 2005. I was like, I don't know, Tarantino. I I know that name, but I don't give a, I don't give a damn about (laughs) Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction. It wasn't until I was older that I really could appreciate how amazing he is and i think that kill bill i have to go back and watch the movies i haven't seen in a while i haven't seen pulp fiction in a while i haven't seen jackie brown in a while but kill bill out of the ones i've seen the only one i didn't see i was just looking actually the only tarantino film i haven't seen is the new one once upon a time in hollywood oh sure and i didn't and i didn't see you're gonna like that that, like and i didn't see that random like death proof movie or whatever he did oh okay everything else i've seen okay i feel like kill bill is maybe his weakest film that i've seen interesting but i think that it's because it focuses 
more on the things that are irrelevant to me and even in Tarantino, like cool fight scenes and stuff like that's cool. But uh, I use this as an example. Indiana Jones has a lot of really cool fight scenes, but the most memorable Indiana Jones fight scene is when he takes the gun out and kills oh, the dude, right? Oh, gee, ingenious. Which is much better than watching a 10-minute scene of them fighting. And Absolutely. it's funny, and you can't do that over and over again, but it's funny and it's humorous and it's a way to kind of deal with that. Like I said, the way the movie began, I was like, uh, it's cool, it's fun to watch, but I remember why I think as when I was younger, this wasn't something that got me into into Tarantino it took a while like Tarantino I think my entry into really caring about Tarantino happened with Django Unchained right you like, love I think movie. that was the movie yeah you I really love I adore that. that movie and I was like holy moly and then when you go back I had seen Inglorious Bastards already at that time and stuff but you go back and you watch some of this stuff and you're like, damn this guy is amazing so I think I just wasn't I wasn't sophisticated enough to know that yet and so going into Kill Bill I just say that as a quantifier because I or a qualifier rather I'm sorry is that it's a wonderful movie, but I think it's probably one of my least favorite um, of his of his pieces. And it's surprising because it is so video game-ish or Katana. I mean, why? I want to talk about why we just love Katanas as a people. But I'm curious what you think the movie is about, especially with not because I don't really know what happens in the second movie. I've definitely never seen it. Oh, really? And, oh, that's going to be a yeah, fun talk. And we can, and we can get into that. I don't care if we spoil it, but I, not knowing, I'm curious what you think this movie is about, because the way I kind of summed it up in my own notes was it seems like it's just a movie very straightforward about a mom's rage. And that's a common theme. I don't know why we're so comfortable as creators going back to this common theme of this mama bear like rage where you get in between a child and its mother and how much fear and emotion comes out of that. So that's it's a cool way to start. And it's interesting because through that story, I think, and what I appreciate about this movie a lot and Tarantino does is that it doesn't shy away from taboos at all. And what I mean by that, and, mm. and, it, and it's to the point of the story, even though it's difficult to watch, the violence is over the top, I think, even compared to any of his movies. And that's Strong. totally fine. But I think it goes even further than that. I think basically killing a woman in front of her child is interesting i think like there are video games for instance where you can't even aim and shoot at child models like in fallout for yeah, instance or something sure. like you can't you literally can't light the kids up when you it won't let them, you do even it. if you want to it won't let you do it okay because there's like some sort of just cultural sensitivity around that Absolutely. and i thought specifically the the buck scene like the rape scene basically where she's like a sex doll i was oh. like this is an extreme case of sexual abuse that really puts her character into perspective her pain into perspective but it's also a tough thing to write and showed me how talented he was in in making it so that it didn't feel as gratuitous as it was because it was important to get that story out to tell the full nature of this character whose name i still don't know so all right i can't ruin that for you that's right you haven't seen two okay i gotta remember which is that. also interesting so yeah what where do we begin on on this on this film i'm curious what you think about it now, let's d dive into it more stylistically. The movie has a, a wonderful, as Tarantino films do, a way to frame shots. And I love the, the symmetry, for instance, of the shot when they're fighting in the house in the beginning and the bus pulls up the bay window in the front. Like, there's a lot of really great shots. And of course, all the stuff at the restaurant at the end is also well shot. And I'll tell you something that I told Micah and surprised her of is I, I've eaten at that restaurant in Tokyo. 
Oh, really? And I had, and I yeah, and I totally forgot. I had totally forgotten about that. Oh shit! So I can talk about that a little later as well. But yeah, let's talk about the style. What what do you make of the the style of the film? And I think it's inherent embrace of camp, and I think also it's embrace of. I usually like to get into the weeds with things that are don't make sense in films. For instance, when she's when she kills Buck and then is in his car for 12 hours, like that doesn't make any sense. Right. But this is one of those because like it's like they're going to know that. But this is the kind of film where it's like, ah, it doesn't matter. Right. It, it, everything feels like really well coordinated. I think part of that is because he's so deliberate with his films. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't do a lot, a ton of products. He doesn't seem to really chase the money. He's really into one thing at a time. And I think it allows him to solve things and really special ways and i think that comes out in the, the film's aesthetic style and the, the way the film shot absolutely the dialogue and all of the rest so talk to me a little bit about all of that yeah it's very he's very authentic filmmaker you know that's one thing you may love quentin tarantino's work you may dislike his stuff but it's coming from a very authentic place right it's coming from a place of skill it's coming from a place of the films he admired he's a film buff he's a rabid film like aficionado he knows film through and through he knows and so he brings that knowledge, not only that skill set, but that knowledge in with him. And like you said, he's true to it. You know, he's not, you feel like he's not beholden to the dollar. Like the money's going to come, obviously, when you have this talent, this kind of unique style of vision, this flavor, very, which is very unto Quentin Tarantino as an individual. But Camp, definitely, I agree with you there. And the fact that he does such genre bending and genre blending. Like, I love what you said about the opening fight scene with the Vernita Green character. Like, it's basically taking, like, the most brutal fight scene from, like, an action flick and then merging that with, like, a rom-com suburban setting. You know, you only see someone like Quentin Tarantino pull that off. You know what I mean? Which is, like, taking a little bit of this, taking a little bit of that, and then blending it together. I also feel like we'll talk about the animated segment, which I love, produced by production IG in Tokyo, but I feel like the entire film is a live action anime too, which I already met, remember getting the sense of that from the teaser trailer before the movie even came out. I was like, this is going to be a proper send up to like, you know, anime, martial arts films, old Shaw brothers, Kung Fu action, spaghetti Western. He's going to take all of that. You know what I mean? And I love the way he'll take like spaghetti Western vantage points perspectives from the camera and merge that with a kung fu film stuff you've never seen before you know that he's kind of creating for the first time he's taking those influences and he's mixing them up in this stew in a way that you've never really witnessed you know and if you have maybe in a short film here and there or something small but he's taking all these different things and he's making it something brand new and from 2000 especially from a perspective almost 20 years now to almost 20 years old pretty special you know, and pretty fun. I think what also kind of speaks to his style is working non-sequentially. In other words, telling the story out of order. I, it's very clever because it actually works for stylizing things. You know what I mean? It's much easier to stylize when you're doing a clip here, a clip there. You're moving backwards. Now you're moving forwards. Now you're skipping ahead in time. Now you're going back a couple of steps. It's very, it's very easy to stylize and make each thing feel like its own little short film. And then you blend it all together. If you're going out of order, that works. If you're moving sequentially, that's going to be very hard to pull off because what am I watching here? You know, very, very clever. Very like, really speaks to me as like 
he he's interesting because he's so obviously self-indulgent but because the the stuff is coming from a place of like real authenticity it just works you know what i mean you believe it you know what i mean it's not a lie it's like it's really how he feels it's really what he enjoys and he's imparting that onto the audience it's almost like sharing his joy it's also weird for me too Kyle like I wonder how you feel about this you're a little less squeamish generally in movies but the violence could be very brutal and I don't necessarily go in for that with movies I I kind of endure it because I love all the other Tarantino hallmarks you know I like put up with it what I love and I remember talking to you about this not too long ago with one of our John Wick conversations is I like the tone of a John Wick where obviously there's a lot of killing going on the action is brutal but it's not necessarily overly graphic or gory the tone is much more fun and upbeat even though you have these horrific things going on and all this danger and all this violence it's it the presentation is very fun and very uh lighthearted almost and cartoony Tarantino's not afraid he's not a sentimental filmmaker not only will he explore taboos, which you mentioned already, which is a very important thing to say, but he'll go down into the depths of like violence he'll, and he'll show it. You know what I mean? He's not afraid to show it. That's a really brutal thing with the bride character in that not only has she been so terribly wronged by her tribe, right? She's this female assassin who was basically betrayed by her people. You have that whole thing going on, was robbed of her unborn daughter as well. On top of that, you're going to tell me that she was basically sex trafficked and then show one of those interactions, one of those exchanges on screen? Like, that's horrible. Ultimately, I like it because it plays into your sympathy and you're really rooting for her. You know what I mean? It's like really a good versus evil story. You know, it requires is, an art. It requires an artist to absolutely to be able to 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 meld all those elements together. Yeah, to love create it's, create a character like he did with Uma Thurman and love a character and really nurture this thing over years and then put her in that situation. It takes a not only a creativity but a discipline to be able to do that. That I don't know that I have that. You know what I mean? Where it's like that character. I know what it is to create characters. Like that character becomes a real thing, and you care for it almost like a real living, breathing person. And like to put her in that situation and stuff, it's like, again, it's very Tarantino. It's part of the Tarantino flavor, like to be able to, like in Glorious Bastards, right? Like we all hate Nazis, but they put Nazis in some pretty precarious, horrifying situations. He's not afraid to go there. Say that, right? He's not afraid to really go there. And I really tip my cap for that, even though it's not my style personally. I admire him for it, you know, if that makes sense. Definitely. It's interesting because I feel like anything taken too far that he did would have ruined the movie, right? It's just, it's an interesting tightrope to watch a filmmaker walk as you deal with all these things. And I was thinking specifically about that, the sex trafficking, like rape scene or rape part of the movie, because that's often a contentious part of filmmaking games, books or whatever. That's often brought up as like, oh, there's a really bad representation of rape and so on and so forth and you hear about that so on and 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 once in a while in entertainment and i've never heard that about kill bill like when i was going in having really not remembered the movie very well i was like oh i don't remember this at all in fact when the pussy wagon thing in the beginning happened (laughs) when she like drives off and then i was like i don't even remember how she gets that and so it it was fun watching it from that perspective as well in going into the taboo 
I, what I really love in the beginning in the first scene is she says, Uma, the bride, says to the daughter, quote, you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. If you still feel raw about it, I'll be waiting. You know, which, is, which is awesome. Like just an amazing code of ethic that these people have, a way of talking to each other. It's very comic book. It's very camp. And I dig that a lot. I'm curious what you make of some of these other characters, though. We, talk to me a little bit about Vivica A. Fox's Vernita Green, codenamed code Copperhead. Dude, really interesting scene in the beginning, the way the whole film starts. So let's start with her and talk, talk a little bit about that character and that scene and what you take away from it. Yeah, it all but starts with this battle. We have this assassin on her... Pasadena. Pasadena, very, right? Very well represented. Yeah, it looks perfect. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm a, like obsessed with that part of California. I think I've mentioned that to you before. Like if I moved to Southern California, like that's the area I'd want to be in. Because I, and I think because it's very... LA centric. It looks very specific, but it also has that East Coast feel to it a little bit. Like just that they're neighborhoods. I love the flavor of it though, that like every house could look different. It's just not like that on the East Coast. Like you might live in a neighborhood with like eight different model houses and they basically generally look the same. And then also like some places like where we grew up in South Bellport, like beholden to certain codes. Like you could paint your shutters green, you could paint your shutters black. Like there's a very Northeastern especially on the water feel to this part of the country. And I love the color, like the fact that you could be colorful and playful out there. Like you can make your house, everybody's house could look different. And they could still look nice. Like, Hey, like that's a novel concept. So I love that area. And I love starting the film all, but starting the film with this scene, like these two grown women, one suburban housewife having this basically knife fight in a living room that goes over into the kitchen. Kid gets off the bus like exploring the violence, but also the comical value in that. Very Tarantino. I'll tell you what struck me about this scene and watching it again, though, that I'm sure it dawned on me in the past as well. Vivica Fox, dude. She, I don't know if she was bringing like an actual fighting knowledge or more. I'm sure she trained for the film. Martial arts training or whatever. Maybe she even grew up with that. I have no idea. But I 100% buy it. Like her physicality. You know, it's nice. We start to get the flavor of Uma Thurman's character, the bride, and what she's capable of and who she's up against. And this is the first one that we see. Dude, like, that knife fight looks real. Like, Vivica Fox, every every movement is so on point, sharp, and elegant. Like, there's no way I'm fighting Vivica Fox, like, or Vanita Green in that scene. Like, she looked like she would... She, it, I, it's, it's completely authentic. Like, I, I just... It feels like a real knife fight. You know what I mean? They're going through the plate glass tables and knocking down the shelves and all that. But just like the way she's moving with that knife and how she has her her free hand like as an assist. Like, I don't know anything about fighting or martial arts, but that is a very, very um, memorable representation of like, it looks real. It really looks real to me. And I don't know, that might be the biggest look you get I forget volume two. We're going to watch it soon and talk about it soon. But I think that might be the biggest taste you get of Vernita, the Vernita Green character as far as what she's capable of. But it's a great entry point. man. It's a great place to start. And the fact of like, you know, trying to like apologize, like she knows she's in deep shit that over that whole scene. And but also like you see the treachery, like she has the gun in the box of Kaboom, you know, another like cultural touchstone for Tarantino, like. Leave it to him, like not only incorporating like martial arts films and Gordon Liu, but like Kaboom Serial, like all the 
pop culture touchstones, like the music, like it's all like, it's all stuff that he loved. It's all, it's nostalgia, you know, like it, it, that could have been a box of Raisin Bran, but he made it a box of Kaboom. It's, it's awesome. Like that's just a Tarantino calling card, you know, that's the, and it starts the movie and you make you realize like, wow, we're in for like, we're in for a crazy wild ride. And you know what the other thing about going non-sequentially, Kyle, I think you mentioned this, like going out of order and kind of revealing bits of the story and, and, and revealing different things at different times is a fun way to piece together what's happening, you know, and, and bring up different things. Like you're saying the pussy wag and how that'll play into volume two later on. And like, you know, a very clever way to keep you dialed in and keep you interested, I think, which I wonder if that's a part of it for him or if he would just, if, if, if it's more like the stylization, like he wants to be able to make it more like an anime. So it's just, you could take more liberties that way. I wonder about T Tarantino with that. I, I feel e either event, you know, in any event, I feel like that fearlessness really comes through. Like he'll try, he'll do anything. I'm curious what you, so we, we have this, this, like I said, sudden intro, very scream-like intro that sets the stage, but then they, they slow things down. And, and by the way, I did want to speak to what you were saying about non-sequential storytelling. I think non-sequential storytelling is risky, and I think it can be really annoying, actually. But I think that if you know how to do it, it works really well. I think a, an example of something that does it really well was the show Lost. Sure. And I think something that did it really poorly was a game like Beyond Two Souls from Quantic Dream, in which when they re-released it on PS4, they gave you the option to put it in order sequentially because it was so... Oh, haphazardly wow. put together otherwise so it's easy to imagine a situation where could be confusing right exactly and if, if you're on that right you're on that razor's edge but they give us a little more context after this because you see this this marriage scene this wedding scene now we have at the end of this film i don't know what has really happened here we know that there's some sort of combat and some sort of fight but we i don't know who the, the man was we know she was pregnant and lost the baby all of this what do you make of this whole aside? Some of the characters that are introduced here, I'm really quite fond of these police characters. I love, <laughs> and this is another one of these things that Tarantino does that I just really enjoy. Just the, the shots. I look at it. I, I look at this. And I'm like, there's just no way I could do something like this, right? There's no way that I would know that this was cool enough to do and a nice enough shot. And you know, the shot I'm talking about here is the shot of the cops aviator glasses on his oh. dashboard. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, this is just such a great, touch and another piece of panache like that gives the movie a little bit of color but this is kind of the mystery that everything surrounds with this 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 what happens at this church we don't i don't again we don't really quite know yeah by the end so what do you make of what we garner from these scenes and from these characters and to your point this is where the quote comes in that revenge is never a straight line which is a great line, which is a great line as well. So talk to me a little bit about these cops, this, this stuff in El Paso and what we know about it, what we can garner from it so far. Yeah. The massacre in El Paso, right? You know that something went down at this church where the bride is betrayed. I got to be careful because I don't want to ruin part two for you. It's at, we, we don't know why at this point we know the deadly Viper assassination squad led by Bill comes into this church and massacres everybody. Nine people were killed, including the bride, including her husband. They say the organist, the preacher, everybody's dead. And except the bride, obviously. And yeah, you get the these cop characters. They're in there. They're trying to figure things out. You got this sleepy, this, you know, this mass murder in this sleepy town. So they're wondering what the hell's going on. And you get this kind of like cool, calm and collected cop played by Michael Parks, one of the great character actors. By the way, you'll see Michael Parks 
pop up in volume two in another role, I guarantee you don't recognize who him in that movie. It's a one of the memorable, one of the great memorable performances of the two thousands. But he's great as the cop character, and also like, you know, paints this really, really continues to paint this really, really harsh world for the bride, where it's like. Even the guy investigating this thing is like a little bit of a pervert. He's a little bit unsavory. You know, it's like the, kind of fleshing out this world of like, what the fuck is, is this woman up against here? Right. You know, you know, so great. And, you know, like those little character marquees that Tarantino paints without saying a word, like the like the range of aviator glasses on the dashboard of the car. Like you don't even have to say anything. You just show that. It's just great writing. It's great storytelling. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, you have a movie. It's a, it's like a, a road movie or a revenge movie. It seems on its surface to be pretty, like, you know, rooted in action and spectacle. And it's this visual tour de force. But there's a lot of depth in there, man. And there's a lot of great storytelling. I mean, it's like we talk about the great writers like Cormac McCarthy. Like, it's no different. Like, Tarantino pulls that off. It's not just his dialogue. It's not just his outlandish stories. It's how he paints the picture. You know, and that's what makes this movie so special. Even if you don't go in for Tarantino, you feel like he's a little bit of a windbag. He's like, you know, he can, he can hit or miss an in interview. Sometimes he seems a little bit full of himself and stuff. But the art, man, you can't make any arguments against the art. It's just, you know, it's through and through. It's just some of the best shit. Yeah, I would be. I've seen some contentious interviews with him, too. But it's like, don't waste this man's time, right? It's another guy. I was like, I don't have anything. I, it's another guy. I don't wouldn't necessarily want to meet because it's like I don't even know what to say to you. Just do whatever it is you do. I feel like that too with him. And a magician doesn't. It's that whole thing, right? A magician doesn't want to talk about how he did the trick. He just wants to do the next trick. You know, the part of the magic is not is doing it, not talking about it. Even though I feel like he, I feel like he's more enthusiastic about talking about his influences rather than his own work, which speaks to me of Tarantino. Look at his movies. You know, it's all in there. Everything he's driven by. Is right, in, is right in the thing he creates. Special. I want to focus a little bit on the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad itself. Just the way it's presented, we see... We don't really meet everyone yet, which is cool. But we see some of them. And I want to focus in specifically on this L Driver, Daryl Hannah character, mm. which is so campy and interesting. So campy. And her name is California Mountain Snake. And we, I guess, learn more about her clearly in the next film. But do, yeah. I like how they have this code of conduct in which they're trying to kind of finish off this. We, we learn that they know she lived. We, they try to finish her off and then pull back, I guess, Bill or whoever pulls, pulls back. But what did you make of this performance? I just think this is such a, a silly, very anime style character. There's two characters in this movie above all else that I think are just incredibly incredibly anime and it's her and it's the character gogo so which we'll talk about later so talk to me a little bit about daryl hannah and and what we know a little bit about yeah one of the campiest characters in this for sure and we will see her more in part two very interesting character and you know what's what really what's great about this first chapter this first volume is that it paints the picture of you got bill right you know he's the targets right in the title he's he's the main adversary he's the top baddie And so you could already, by the end of the film, you know, here's this guy. He's this leader of this group of assassins who are, you know, trained in martial arts and some of the deadliest people in the world, apparently. And he's got this group of protégés that are all women 
that are also all his lovers, right? So you're like, who the fuck is this guy? Already, it already like paints those questions of like, who is this dude? And you don't even see his face, I don't think, in this chapter. You see him when he's talking to Elle, the Daryl Hannah character. He's kind of like playing with his sword and you see his hand. It's, and then you see him talking to Sophie at the end, but you don't see him yet. You don't get a big taste of him visually. So you have to kind of intimate what he's about and you know he has this group of assassins that work for him that he also beds apparently right he's got all these girls he's got all these lovers they're all beautiful and he it's and his brother so it's it's bill his brother bud who we don't see will will get to meet really much more so much more so in volume two and then this group of women who work for him and that also you know uh act as like his i don't know what do you want to call it like Oh, escort. Escort. <laughs> yeah, it's got, yeah. Lovers. I guess they're kind yeah. of like, especially like the bride character. You'll get to know like she's more of um, a, like um, what do you call it? Like an inspiration for him. She's more of a, a muse. A muse. Like they're a group of muses that he, you know, he uses in his own way. So you, you know, here you have this very manipulative, very charismatic dude at the top, and all of his underlings and. You know, how each one of them is a little different. You have El Driver. You have one that basically heads up the Japanese mafia. You have Uma Thurman. You have one that became, like, trying to blend in as a housewife. So it's really interesting how, you know, it's like how he has these individuals, but they're all, like, they're all his protégés. You know, he's the mentor of this group of women, basically. Let's talk about next, in in my notes anyway, I want to get to the restaurant scene towards the end, although there are other things that we have to accomplish at some point because there's just a lot to speak about in this in this short film although i think it'll become more complicated once we have the second part but oren ishii lucy lu's character this chinese american japanese yakuza boss now my story about this restaurant is it's funny because i did go here in when I, one of the times I went that's to Japan, so cool and i didn't know that it was anything special shuhei yoshida from Sony invited me to meet him for dinner somewhere. So I did. And I just took a, like a taxi there and they pointed me in the right direction. And I walked in and apparently he's like, Oh, this is like the, you know, where kill bill that fight scene and kill. Bill I didn't was know that was a I was like, is it really called the house of blue leaves? Do you remember? I don't know what it was. I have no, I couldn't speak to that. So cool. Maybe, but yeah, it's like a real space. And, um, yeah, I ate there with him one night. So that was, that's kind of an interesting touchstone I have to that scene. That's but, so cool. I'm jealous. But, uh, I wanted to say, to, I don't often like to interconnect our shows with each other necessarily, unless obviously it's like a series or, but we just did one on Metal Gear Solid 3. And one of my major qualms with that film or that movie, I'm sorry, that game was the flippant use of language that you're speaking Russian technically throughout much of the game, but it doesn't ever differentiate who's speaking what and when, who understands what and when. And it's hard for me to impress upon some people apparently, who are really, especially fanboyish about that game. Be like, don't you understand how much it could have benefited the story to know who's speaking what, when, and how, and why, and who can understand things? And you know what movie really represents the exact potential of that sort of thing and why it's mastery is this movie. Yeah. And it was funny. I couldn't escape from that as people are going between their various languages, specifically Japanese and English, but others as well. It adds so much texture and height as people, you don't understand each other. They, they don't know who's speaking when. It, it adds a whole lot of confusion and I love how that all comes to bear towards the end of the movie and it just I needed to say like see Metal Gear Solid 3 fans like 
this is how you use language so that you can mystify the audience, confuse those around the protagonist or give inspiration to the antagonist, all the rest. It's a, it's a really wonderful thing. And, and the, the barriers that are created with language here, forcing the audience to read a ton is great. And I don't think, again, it's a thing that a lot of filmmakers would get away with doing. There are quite a few of those things in this film, but yeah, I am curious what you make of that, of that character, Lucy Liu's character, that scene and all the rest. I mean, there's so much to say about it. Yeah. She's, a, she's really like a main emphasis character. You know, one of the five targets, five or six targets for, for the bride character, top of her list, by the way. And such an interesting character because she's of half Chinese and half Japanese heritage of American descent. Like she's from, she's from America, from the West. And Basically, like this Yakuza top Yakuza crime boss now. Also, of course, heavily associated with Bill and his assassins. But she has this place at the top of the the, the Japanese crime syndicates. And such an interesting character. because I And I love how each one of the baddies, like each one of the antagonists, and we'll see this even carried out further in Volume 2, Kyle, like they each have their own world. You know, Sophie... And Oren and Gogo are in this in this inner, very insulated, innermost Japanese Tokyo crime circle world. But they're all like kind of embedded in their own place now. They've kind of like spread to the like Voltron, right? They're kind of like spread to the the five corners of the world and then they're gonna reunite at some point, or the bride's gonna make sure they reunite. But and I love the fact there's a really interesting thing going on with the Oren Ishii character, too, because we find out the most about her in this movie. We find out her origins, that her dad was a military man, and somehow her family ran afoul of the Yakuza and murdered her parents. And her whole life was reve getting revenge. Like she disguised herself as like a young, young call girl and an escort and murdered the people that wronged her family, that murdered her family. And then you could see like, I don't know if we ever get this story, but you could see Bill kind of swooping in and taking him under her wing of like, oh, this this woman's already like a badass. Like this is she, this is a perfect proxy for me. And then we see like by the time she's in the late teens, early 20s, she's a, one of the foremost assassins in the world. And we get that whole production IG animated segment, origin segment of her, which is so cool. It's so beautifully done. So Yeah, gorgeous. take a moment to take some time to talk about that. Um, it's so great, uh, man. It's a, Not only does yeah. it paint the picture of a great character and one of the bride's targets, but... Also, there's a lot of parallels between the Oren Ishii and the bride character and the fact of like, there should be some sort of sympathy there because they bo they're both driven by the same thing. They're both driven by revenge. So even though one's, it, it's interesting that Oren ran afoul of the bride and did her wrong that way because she knows how it feels to be betrayed. She knows what it, what it feels like to be fueled by revenge. Hmm. So those two characters have a lot in common, which I think is really cool. And maybe that even plays up the fact that there, there are such deadly enemies. But that animated segment, I remember that not even being, I don't think that was even in any of the trailers to my best recollection. Certainly not in the teaser trailer that I loved before the movie opened in the theaters. So that was a really big treat for me, going in and seeing that segment. Like all of a sudden it cuts away to this animated segment. It's pretty lengthy. And Production IG is top in the credits. Like it's one of the first things like, animation by production ig tokyo japan like it's really early in the credits so i love seeing that that nod and production ig was you know 
to give you guys a little origin, like there's a lot of studios now, like look at Disney Visions, like a lot of top anime studios that are known for their quality and their style and the projects they created. But Production IG was one of the first ones coming out of the late 80s into the 90s and into the early aughts that was that was really known for its craft and the artfulness and the quality of their their work. So it was really a treat, like hearkening back to 2003 to see them involved in a Quentin Tarantino project. Makes sense. They're already probably a household name with a lot of creators, especially someone as nerdy and a Japanophile like Quentin Tarantino is, you know. And I love the segment because it's beautifully animated, all hand animated, very stylized, really gorgeous. It has that rough, almost xerography look to the moving line. Like it has like a really kinetic energy to the art direction. And it's brutal. You know, it's a brutal piece of animation. It's violent. It's gory. It's kind of unapologetic. And it has, it sets the tone for, it fits in with the rest of the movie, but it's extra jarring to see that in animated form. It's just the way it is. You know what I mean? Like, I think maybe it's a Westerners, even a Westerner like me, like our look at an animation, it's like, you, you're reminded that it's not just kid stuff. You know what I mean? It's like very, very adult oriented. And to see that sort of tone carried over into the animation and then go back into the live action, it's just beautifully done. And it's a bold choice for a director. That's why you don't see that a lot. You know, only a guy like Tarantino could really pull that off because he knew, knew exactly what that segment needed to be. And it was very clever to make it one of the top bad guys, one of the most important bad guys, to make it their origin story. You know, it just really works for that. And um, I was disappointed not to see that. Not No spoilers, but for volume two, they don't carry over the animated treatment. It's probably very expensive. And I would love, it's something that I would love to see more in film. You know what I mean? Like just to incorporate and just remind people like this is a legit form of storytelling it's just a it's not a genre it's just another way of telling a story it's another filmmaking technique and it it was so cool like even coming into this loving tarantino already it's like it it made me love him even more that he would embrace animation as a storytelling medium in a feature film it wasn't like a side project or something that he wrote it was like you know his fourth feature it's a big deal like he still says maintains we'll talk about this at the end of the show like that he's only going to do 10 features and number nine was once upon a time in Hollywood. So he's only got one left. Yeah. It's I said, I hope that, guns. yeah, I hope that that's not true, but he's got to do what he's got to do. I, I think with the animation, it was, a, it was really bold. I agree with you. It's just a bold decision to do that. It heightens the, the medium, although it's not a medium, as I've said many times that I necessarily jive with completely. If I'm given a different option, there are always exceptions to the rule. The one thing I would have really thought would have been cool, Dig, or like a really interesting decision. Yeah. Would have been if it would have been expensive and you find out with that, that Lucy Liu character, it's just too much of the movie. But it wouldn't have been neat if just one arc coming off of the bride was just all animated. And that so like the entire thing, it just spliced back to it. It wasn't all just one animated sequence, but rather when you learned about this character or visited this character or fought this character, it just was that whole thing was animated. That's a great And idea. everything else was real. You know, that would have been kind of a neat. That's awesome. Decision. So that Lu Lucy Liu is just the voice or whatever, right? Sure. I mean, she's wonderful in the film. But it would, have, it would have been cool to just see something like that, like a more a buy-in and then maybe wonder why is this being remembered like this? Why is it being told like this? Because it's not being told like that for any specific reason other than I think to heighten the Japanese influence of the movie sure and and all of that but like when you when i was watching it i was wondering 
how far the cartoon was going to go or the anime was going to go in the sense are they trying to avoid how difficult it's going to do to be to do the, the overt violence that a katana is going to wield a bunch of all these different people and then they're like oh no no, no we're gonna no, we're gonna too. show you that yeah yeah so it that was kind of a nice surprise too because you could imagine people criticizing something like that for that reason where it's kind of like a cop-out oh sure. we can't but no they didn't they didn't do that which i think makes it all the stronger oh abs- that's a great point man absolutely absolutely but I'm curious what you make about this this end sequence that we get into this lengthy kind of fight scene, everything at the restaurant, the tension being built is awesome. I love when she throws the dart out of the, oh, the door so and goes go out to see. Yeah, it's super. It's just a super cool scene. The band is playing. The band is really playing. You can tell that they're definitely playing on that. Like. I I get really fixated on live bands in shows and movies because they're usually really bad as far as the way that they're mimicking yeah, the moves point. and stuff it annoys the shit out of me if you if you don't know any better then you're never gonna know but like watching a guy play drums like this you know <laughs> like i like or like being totally off beat or whatever but they're they're definitely playing yeah as a playing. musician you could you can't go for that no and i would imagine that that's not something that tarantino would ever abide by right yeah he's I not gonna put a so. person behind a bar that doesn't know how to wield a bottle he's not gonna put a person behind a drum kit that doesn't know how to play it and so I, I think that that was a really cool scene as well. But even everything leading up to that bar, the motorcycles and the katanas, what is it that we love so much about Kawasaki Ninja style Japanese motorcycles and katanas? I don't understand why they're so cool. And I, I love that he leans into that at a time, totally. like you say, that it's not necessarily a mainstream thing quite yet. We're, we're getting there behind the scenes. I mean, Talk to me a little bit more more about the scene and also the violence, because you were talking. I'm curious to pick your brain about this. You were talking about earlier about the violence and and how it maybe even is a little much. It's a much for you. Like you even get a little squeamish at it. I don't. Mike is the same way. She doesn't like violence. It doesn't bother me really ever. I don't like real violence. Like if I watch. I've seen horrible things. We've all seen maybe not all of us, but like when you see like an ISIS beheading video. Sure. Or something like that. That's real. That's way different than seeing a horror movie i don't care like i don't care I, you can show me all the violence you want it does not bother me but i think he does something and i don't know if it's intentional and i don't even know if it's really true but it's something that i feel is true i feel like the blood isn't quite right and it doesn't it's not the right it's not quite the right red it's too bright and it reminds me a lot of danganronpa which does the video game series which yeah. does it much more extreme where the blood in those games is actually pink Oh, and it, okay. those games are really violent, but it kind of tones it down and actually adds to the foreboding cartoonishness of the game and sure. how crazy the games are. So that's a stylistic choice there as well. There's just something about the violence being so overt and over the top that I'm like, this isn't scary or squeamish to me because this is not the way it would go. First of all, it, it, everything about this is impossible, right? But it doesn't matter. It's fun. Right. So I'm not complaining about it. I'm simply saying that if it was saving private Ryan level gore, that was much more realistic, like bodies washing up on the shore. That to me is much darker than anything in this film, no matter the gallons and gallons and barrels of right. blood that they spill. Right. So talk to me a little bit about this fight scene and everything that leads up to it. Gogo is a character. If you want to bring her in and it's just, it's funny because it's a little anticlimactic. There's just, it's just bodies and bodies and bodies and bodies. Like none of them really put up a fight. And it's, it's, it's a strange scene. I think it could actually be examined for, from a lot of different angles. 
Yeah, I mean, we're leading up to this. This is the set piece battle. This is where this volume, volume one, is leading. This is the place where we end up. It's the big set piece, long battle, long fight. The bride finally catches up with her target. I love what you said, Kyle, about just if you're going to make a live action anime, like make a live action anime. And if you're going to be a Japanophile, like go all in, like show Tokyo, show the highways, show the bright lights, show the Suzuki and Kawasaki motorcycles, the katanas, you know, really play up the anime angle. I mean, Sophie Fatale drives a 300ZX, a Nissan 300ZX, which is like a really, a real like ricer, like sought after Japanese car from like the early nineties, like a notorious twin turbo, super fast, like, like a Toyota super, like an iconic car. Like there was no mistake that Tarantino made her drive one of those. Everything is like a nod to Japan. You know what I mean? It's, it's super cool. And like, that's the level of depth. Like if you know this stuff, then you know, like, all right, this is super sick. And of course, all the iconic, the iconographic stuff that he introduces in the yellow jumpsuit, like the stuff that this movie is now known for. He puts a little bit of himself in there too. And the, the violence is another thing. It is very graphically violent. He does a lot of tricks. Like he goes to black and white when it gets to be really bloody, he goes to black and white, which he borrowed from a film. I forgot which film he borrowed that from. But are they doing that to avoid a rating? I was wondering that, like if it was a stylistic choice or not. I don't know, yeah. because there's so much before and after. I know it was a nod to a specific samurai movie. I forget which one. But the whole thing is a nod to samurai movies. The level of mm -hmm. violence, the the action, some specific fighting moves, enemies and stuff like that. But, you know, if you're going to call up these influences, Lady Snowblood, Lone Wolf and Cub anime you know the most violent sword sword play anime like it's all in there it's part of the treatment it's you know the gushing arteries and the constantly severed limbs like it's very very exaggerated so if you're gonna make a live action cartoon go for it you know what i mean i feel like that's what the house of blue leaves sequence really is even with the band you know even with the five six seven eights that was a band that he said he found on a on a trip in tokyo I don't know if he was on a research trip or if he was just on vacation. He said he was in a really trendy, like retro clothing store somewhere in Tokyo and they were playing the five, six, seven, eights music. And he went to the person behind the register and was like, dude, I, I need this. Like you have to give me the CD. And they gave it to him. And he said, if, the, if he left that store without them giving him the CD, he probably would have never even thought of it again or found them or went with that. So that was a cool, like little anecdote. Yeah. But setting that whole, setting the whole tone, it feel it that whole bit, like from the the point of the Oren's little yakuza tribe going in and drinking in their own little private room and ordering pepperoni pizzas and making front fun of the proprietors and the whole Charlie Brown bit. <laughs> Charlie Brown, it's so Charlie funny. Brown's amazing. Yeah. Charlie <laughs> Brown, so good. Dude. <laughs> you know, but the whole thing, even leading up to the fight with the initial group and then the, the the crazy 88 coming in via you know their motorcycles later on and the real the big battle ensuing it all feels like something that you would see the scale of it and the level of exaggeration and just sort of the magnitude of of this whole thing culminating in this one set piece battle really feels like an anime you know what i mean there's nothing that he's doing whether it's the camera work or the level of blood or the effects, or the level of extras he has in the shot, like everything's on a huge scale. Like everything's really pushed 
to the umph, you know, the tenth, the the tenth degree. Like it's just like it's massive, and you could only really replicate that in animation. Like you couldn't even have made it any bigger. And that's what I love about it. You know, what I mean, it really feels like everything it's sending up, and um, you know, even and and it's it's a logical place to end up too at the end of the story because. Everything's leading up to that. Everything's getting a little bigger, a little bigger. There's a there's a head of steam growing, you know, everything's snowballing into that scene. And then also like it can't be over there's other scenes that I love in the movie that I want to talk about, but also like the head of steam that's built up with again tying in music, whether it's you know, a lot of what Tarantino already does, which is finding music that already exists that's appropriate for the scene, but also Riza, you know, from the Wu Tang clan, Bobby Digi scoring you know and providing the original music for the film again him being a a a huge obviously a huge kung fu and martial arts film fan only on the order of quentin tarantino so that whole thing too the way they tie in music with the whole thing and just make it such a memorable a memorable experience i think that might be one of the reasons why the violence and the gore doesn't bother me as much as it could because it is so stylized you know what I mean it is like so over the top and pushed and you know there's limbs flying and now she's cutting everybody's legs off and you know even the even the but it's brutal but it is brutal it's unapologetically brutal I mean even from the very beginning of calling out Oren and, and chopping off Sophie's arm like it's pretty brutal shit like you know you see Sophie there like writhing around screaming on the floor and then later on when you have all dead and half dead and mutilated uh, subordinates on the floor, like they're all moaning and groaning. It's, you know, it's, he's not pulling any punches. He's not known for that, you know? Yeah. I, I actually enjoyed watching the scenes, like the few shots after like at all the combat where you just see the different actors do crawling. There's one guy like kind of maddeningly just running, walking around. And it's funny because the, the big, violent moves are the ones that don't really bother me like when sophie gets her arm cut off i'm like eh, like that doesn't bother you know or or when gogo like guts the dude in the bar oh yeah during one of her backstories i'm like this is kind of especially because they it almost makes it scarier because he doesn't linger too long which i think is a smart move as well but then there are scenes during the gogo fight for instance with the bride i think when she slams the the nails into her foot and twists it or whatever that's like brute. That's way more brutal Ugh. than anything else in the film. Yeah, me. it's realistic. And yeah, like that. I'm like, oh my god. Like, that's way worse than getting your head cut off. Like, ah, whatever. You know? I agree. Yeah, there's something that you're right. There is something about that that rings true. Like, it's just like there's a there's a realistic level of violence or a relate. I guess a relatable level of violence, right? That just makes you cringe. Dave, let me back up a little bit. We've talked so much about the violence, which comes at the hand of this sword. What do you think about? the scene of her getting the sword. I really enjoy this as well. And I was thinking about this in the scene or whatever with Hanzo, where Uma Thurman has really amazing range. Oh, she really does. Her acting in that scene is quite remarkable. I I was really fixated on it. She plays like a bubbly American naive girl or whatever woman. And that's not who she is in the movie. But I was looking at this character. And I'm like, holy shit, this is you could just take this character and bring her somewhere else. And it and this it just goes to show the chops. I think I think this this scene specifically really heightens it. The way she acts calm, pretends she can't understand them as they're arguing with each other. Pronounces things too 
closely to the original and all of that. What do you make about that whole scene in that in that restaurant? You know, it's funny what you say about Uma Thurman. It reminds me, like, we all saw Pulp Fiction in the mid-90s, right? She was around, but that's the first time she was on everybody's radar, right? She played this iconic character, Mia Wallace, who was like the mall of like this big gangster guy, right? Or the wife, actually, of like this big gangster, notorious gangster type. And she's like the trophy wife. And she's so iconic in that, you know, her outfit, like the cool, slick Bob haircut, um, the attitude, the, the drug use, the banter, like her witty dialogue, everything about her. Like, it was like, oh, like you would think about Uma Thurman and Mia Wallace in the same breath. And you, it's almost like to the point of like, how do you top that as an actor? Like you're already going to be known for this for life. It's such an iconic role. And here she is topping it with the bride. I mean, I think the bride's an even better character, even more like notor- like not only the aesthetic and the look with the yellow jumpsuit and the sword play, but like just the character is just, you know, it's a really grounded character for all of those cartoonish looks. It's like, you know, it really feels like a real life, someone you would know in real life, you know, oddly enough. And I think... It's so interesting to me about the her trip. We see the bride go off to Japan, and she's looking to get a sword. And now we have the Sunny Chiba scene, which is broken into two halves, I would argue. Dude, first of all, this is honestly one of my favorite scenes in movies of the last 20 years. I watch this. I would go out of my way on YouTube to watch this scene every couple of months. There's something so, like, I think human but also reverent and warm. First of all, shout out to Sonny Chiba. I just found out yesterday in researching, he died mm-hmm. at 82 this year of COVID, of all things, I think back in the summertime. So we lost him. And he was an icon for of acting. He played, which I don't think I even realized this before researching, he played Hattori Hanzo in a Japanese TV series in the 60s and was one of those great martial artists that crossed over into Hong Kong, into Japanese cinema, into, into movies, you know, like a Jet Li, like a Gordon Liu, like a Bruce Lee, those type of guys. Like he was one of those dudes. And he, so he brings that heritage already in real life of like this known martial arts movie star icon. And then I think with the influx of nerd culture in the West, like he became a household name here, like, he, like, like he's been there for decades. So like a Gordon Liu to get him, for Tarantino to get him instead of somebody playing a Sonny Chiba type, is that's the kind of authenticity you want to see in your nerd movies, right? And I love Sonny Chiba's warmth. You know what I mean? Like, and he plays two parts in this. So you have the bride arriving in Okinawa, and she shows up and she seems like a gaijin, right? Like she's like this white girl straight from the States, walks in, acts like she doesn't know much Japanese, starts to develop this dialogue with this sushi restaurant proprietor. And there's like this warmth. There's like this really great chemistry and he's being really friendly and he seems like to be, seems like a little kind of like hole in the wall type place. So he seems to be happy to have a customer. And they have this banter back and forth and this playful thing where he's teaching her Japanese and there's a great warmth and like a lightheartedness and a great spirit, right? And you're wondering what this is leading up to. And then he's got his assistant 
or his partner at the restaurant. And I wanted to ask you this, Kyle, before I go any further. To me, it always struck of like, now you know, we know as an audience, this is Hattori Hanzo. This isn't like a sushi, like a hole-in-the-wall sushi restaurant uh, chef. This is like the the guy. This is like the legendary ninja sword maker dude, and she's seeking him out. But he doesn't know, he doesn't know that yet, that that's what she's after. And here he's got this guy working with him in the restaurant. They got this real husband, wife, like old married couple thing going on where they're arguing. And for some reason, right from the beginning, I remember feeling this way in the theater watching this, you know, 17 years ago. I thought that they were kind of intimating that they were a homosexual couple. Like it was kind of giving me that vibe. I've never heard it talked about. I've never heard anybody talk about this in a review or Tarantino or anybody. But I was always charmed by that. You know, I felt like it was a very inventive touch. Even so, even if not, it's like you you got these two old friends and you got this r- argumentative thing going on where the guy's like, you, you know, taking exception to being ordered around and everything like that. You have this whole like really lighthearted comical thing in the beginning and then the scene, the tone of the scene changes. And at first, it's the bride's tone who changes when she's like, I'm looking for a man. And like, the whole scene seems to change. It doesn't, but the whole scene seems to change color. And you're like, oh shit. If this is the guy, how is he going to react? And even in her acting, she's kind of expressing that. Like, I'm saying this, but I'm not sure what's going to happen here. This is a dangerous man that's trying to hide. And I'm calling him out. And I love the tonal change in the scene. And then the scene shifts to the attic, right? Dude, that that music plays, I get very emotional. And I realize, like, there's a couple of things going on in this scene. The Sonny Chiba character, the Hanzo character, is kind of revealing himself. Like, he's he's agreeing to reveal himself. Like, she found me, and okay, the, the, the jig is up type of thing. Also, this is her fucking religion, dude. Like, this is everything she stands for. There's such a reverence, like with almost touching the sword and then asking permission and all that kind of stuff. And then for me, and I'm not trying to be corny or sappy with this or anything. Like for me, I think it speaks to my soul because it's everything being honored that I grew up loving, right? Like starting with like, we've talked about this, like snake eyes and storm shadow and the Ninja turtles. Right. And then like Electra assassin, and Psylocke and just the idea of like martial arts and ninjutsu and Ninja Gaiden and Shinobi and Wrath of the Black Manta, like the video games we grew up with, like all these Kane and I'm not, I'm sorry, not Kane, Edge and Shadow. Edge and and right. Final Fantasies, right? right? Final Fantasies. Four and six. Four and six. So yeah, all of these things that we grew up being fascinated with and now you're putting it on the screen and you're honoring it in this almost spiritual Um, religious way and it's also that's what's happening with the character and i think that's why it makes me very emotional like i get teary-eyed with this i think the song playing you know helps drive up those emotions and just this whole thing of like this is their this is their religion this is their life this is something this is the the thing that they dedicated their life to and her almost like i want to say orgasmic because it cheapens it like her almost religious response to 
feeling that sword. Like you feel what she's feeling. It's not like somebody in Chinatown grabbing a sword off the wall and being, oh, this is a badass. I'm going to put this in. I'm going to hang this in my studio. I'm going to hang this in my bedroom. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a part, this is like an appendage. And this is like, what it's like, and she's handling this instrument of like, this is the most, this is the Ferrari, dude. Like, this is like the Lamborghini. Like, this is the ultimate in, you know, the ultimate sword. There's no other brand name. This is a priceless relic. This is everything. And it's my favorite scene. In the movie, I I love the earlier thing with the bickering with the with with Hanzo and his uh his assistant or his partner or whatever whoever that is, and I love the whole attic scene. And then it turns into the ritual of like him, you know, christening the sword and giving it to her and bestowing it upon her. You know, yellow you know yellow haired warrior, you know, like set dispatching her, and the fact of like also like you're so happy for the bride because you know her mentor betrayed her and now she's got this fucking mentor like now it's like and part of it is that like is sort of Hanzo and his repentance because he created he helped create this monster and he knows it so now he's sending her into the world with something that he promised he would never do again in order to play his part you know what I mean in order to like and you realize this is a great man and like she's got this now she's got this great mentor you know it's just like and the mystique because you never see him again and you know you want more and he give they give you just enough they give you just a taste of this iconic character this legendary Hattori Hanzo character and you feel like wow is this like an Iga clan descendant of like is this like a, is this the real thing this is crazy like how do you incorporate how do you write this and incorporate that and make it work and make it like resonate like it resonates like i get so excited about this scene like it's it's my favorite and and there's some there's some great stuff in volume two as well but i feel like this is my favorite bit in both you know in all four hours this is my favorite bit for sure and as far as the the scene at the end i mean i'm, I'm curious what do you make of the yakuza I'm, i've always been very interested in this group the mm. japanese underworld has always been really fascinating to me because japan is a very low crime society now they argue you are there's arguments that especially sexual crime and stuff is just not reported very much there right culture of disbelief and all of that but generally speaking japan is known as being incredibly safe and it's always fascinating that some of the most notorious underworld criminals in the world when you think about it hail from japan whether or not they've earned that title i imagine maybe they have maybe they haven't i have no clue but what do you make about the who's why are we interested in the Japanese underworld? I think it's interesting, Kyle, when you think about crime syndicates or the underworld in the East as opposed to the West. I don't know if it's like notoriously less flashy than, say, the American mafia, right? I think the Russian mafia is another interesting conversation, but I think it doesn't really play into either one. I think every each as far as I know, and I have very limited knowledge, obviously, but I think each underworld in each part of the world is very distinctive unto itself. It seems they all seem a little different. Like Russian organized crime seems like it's uh, to me, it always seemed like from what I heard or what I read. And again, I have very limited knowledge, but it always seemed very tied in with the government where Italian, you know, you have the traditional Italian, the, you know, the black hand dating back to Sicily and all that kind of stuff. It almost, uh, it, and maybe this is media 
and movies and TV, especially playing into it, but it always seemed like more like flashy, you know, like a little more demonstrative out in the open show off the, you know, Oh, and the, and the, mm-hmm. and the bling and the hey. houses and the what, yeah. you know, the, the, the gumars and all this kind of stuff where <laughs> yeah. Japanese Yakuza, you hear of it, but it always seemed to me like something like if they're dealing in sex trafficking, if they're dealing in prostitution, if they're dealing in drugs, whatever black market retail, whatever, like that type of thing, just overt, theft whatever it is like it always seemed like it was something that really operated in like what you would consider like a ninjutsu type of way like the art of you know disappearing the art of like invisibility like it always seemed tied in with that like it was much more shadowy much more sneaky much less flashy just something going on a true underworld thing like something going on beneath the surface a a a, a culture underneath the culture that was purposely you know, that was profitable, but purposely hidden from sight. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but what's so crazy about the representation of the Yakuza in Tarantino's film and Kill Bill is that it is this, like, almost Italian mafia-esque Western Godfather, Goodfellas, Sopranos-type thing where it's, like, this overt thing where they they move as a posse, they enter restaurants together, they throw their weight around, they're dressed in these very distinctive black suits. They drive these motorcycles and escort this very um, flashy Mercedes uh, executive car around. And they have swords in the back of their bikes. Like, you know what I mean? It's it's a very anime, very um, showy, colorful representation of something that's known to be mysterious. And uh, that's very interesting to me. It's a very stylized depiction of the Yakuza. And I think the other thing, too, is like, we don't really have that many. I feel like there's that not that many Yakuza based. There's not that many things about the Yakuza. You had the video games, right? Or video game. Is it one video game? No, no it's this whole series. It's a franchise. Yeah. And you have, you know, Western movies here and there that like that go into that, but they're very few and far between. I feel like it's still very much a mysterious thing. It's almost like we talk about with World War One. It's like, why aren't there more things about this? This is really interesting. You know, it's even exploring like feudal Japan, I feel like, or ninjutsu, the the history of the legacy of like ninjutsu. Like it's very, it's not, it's always very stylized. It's never like a true life representation of that thing. So maybe it has that going on too. But I like the way it plays into that sort of like, you know, these are the guys that rule Tokyo and like everybody knows it. You know, I mean, they they ride around demonstrating that daily. Like they they're they're the force to be reckoned with. They're the and they they don't have to hide. They they're right out in plain sight, which makes them makes them appropriately badass. And I think with Lucy Liu too, it's important to say we kind of skipped over this. I didn't mean to. Her casting is so good in this because obviously she's Asian. She's supposed to be half uh, Chinese and half Japanese, and she has that exotic look to her, Lucy Liu. Like she has you know, those really cool freckles. Like she's obviously gorgeous. And I love the, I love, by the way, like her uh, inclusion in Curb Your Enthusiasm as playing herself. That was so cool. But, you know, she's, she's a great one for this part because she feels like she could be Chinese. She could be a Westerner. And I love that she takes exception to calling in her, you know, calling in the Chinese and English ties. You know what I mean? Like, She's she's got this elegance. She has that one style of sword. She's got this whole lady snowblood type thing. But 
you know what I mean? She's got that, she's got that really like vi- that violence underneath the surface. Like she's a dangerous person, and uh, but she has that elegant front. You know, almost moves like a geisha. You know what I mean? Very, very poised and postured and all that kind of stuff. Super cool casting. I mean, I think all the casting is cool. Ju- Julie Dreyfus too. Like great casting. You know, sh- she has real J- Japan ties in real life, so you kind of buy that from her awesome bit of casting. I feel like Tarantino's casting is always good. Yeah, dude, the the Yakuza in this is so cool, and we'll see a little bit more of that. And you know, the whole thing with like the crazy eighty-eight and having like a a name for themselves, and you know, I it's it's interesting to me. Did you ever hear PJ's story with the Yakuza? G, PJ has this friend of his, this guy Jesse, who lived in Japan for a long time, and he talks about seeing the Yakuza guys move around like down in certain sections of Tokyo in the arcades and stuff like that. And the the way they would just be like normal dudes. Like, I don't know what the identifier was physically, but you just knew who they were. Maybe it's that they moved in groups. Maybe they were dressed really natty in like nice suits or whatever, like um, tailored suits or whatever. But they would just be acting like regular dudes, like playing games and drinking and stuff like that. And then they they wouldn't necessarily be trying to hide their identity, but they would just be blending in with everybody. But I guess anybody in the know knew who they were, which is always fascinating to me. It's another thing of like, wow, I'd love to go to Japan and just see that from afar. Like, yeah, as I as I recall, like I remember trying to or researching visiting a Shinto shrine when I was there once. Yeah, and you can, but I didn't want to disrespect them because they prefer that people with. I didn't think they want people with tattoos at Shinto shrines. Oh, and that's I think interesting. Part of the reason why oh, is because right. it's an identifier of the yakuza there. That's right. Is, that's what I've always yeah. heard. Yeah, is like the yakuza wear their tattoos, and I guess that's kind of maybe an old fashioned thing now, but was that's how you knew. Now, do the they have anyway. certain tattoos? Are there certain marks, or is it just like any tattoo? I don't know. I don't know nearly enough. You know, I mean, people love that yakuza series from. Ryu Gakoshu or whatever they're called, uh, studio from um, from Sega. They actually just lost the the studio leads to another team. But is that Yakuza an ongoing franchi- series, or they have put that to bed now? No, no, it's ongoing. Okay. It's, it's more popular than ever. Wow, that's um, cool. Fifteen years on, I think now, starting on the PlayStation Two. I wanted to briefly touch on the character Gogo, who I mentioned earlier, the bodyguard character. Really smitten with this character because. I feel like she's pulled straight out of like Persona or some video game oh, series. Dude. Absolutely. And just everything about her killer look. I love, I love the flashback with her and the old man at the bar. Like we said, I love that she returns with some sort of morning star type mace that I'm like, where did you get this thing? And you were talking about the violence. Like that scene to me is the most tense because like the idea of crushing, getting crushed with that sort of thing. Like when it hits her in the back of her own head, oh, it's like, man. Oh man, like, so I really liked that. And, and I thought that one of the most visceral scenes in the entire movie was when she's strangling Uma Thurman with it. And she's it's awesome. She's like wrapping the chain around her body and like spinning slowly towards her to like just increase. You the think tension. she's done. Really, you really do. Yeah, you it's, think, it's quite the, the ballet. What did you think about this? This character? I really like this character. It's too bad that she had to go. Dude, this is character design 101. Right. Right. You have this Yakuza baddie, this Yakuza boss in Oren Ishii. Who's going to be her? Her, like, right lieutenant, who's going to be her bodyguard? It's got to be this massive dude, right? It's got to be, like, this incredible Hulk type. No, it's this 17-year-old schoolgirl that uses this really unique weapon that has a strength. And, you know, she's on the surface. She's, like, this giggling, shy Japanese schoolgirl. And there's this fucking monster underneath, dude. She's, like, one of the most dangerous people. She guards. She's the bodyguard of one of the most dangerous women in the world, right? 
and you put that in the package of like a 17 this slight of build 17 year old japanese schoolgirls fucking ingenious i mean this is like this is how you tell a story this is how you create a character and knowing like seeing her for a while before you even get to see her in action you're like what is this chick capable of and like even like the exchange before the fight with the bride and Gogo and the bride's like, our reputations precede us, like trying to talk her out of it. Like the bride knows, knows damn well who she is. They know who each other and they know, you know, this is going to be this epic battle. And you're right. That mace, that bladed mace, dude, that thing feels heavy. First of all, you got this chain weapon that you're swinging You got to keep around. it moving, which is cool. You got to keep, I was talking to that with Mega. I'm like, to use it, you got to like keep it moving. You can't stop moving. Yeah. Really you're cool, fighting somebody you with know? a sword. Yeah, you know, like one of the most dangerous people in the world with a sword, and you got this. It's all about momentum. Unwieldy. You know? like, it's unbelievable. Yeah, so yeah, cool. good, dude. And the bride would have been finished if that table wasn't broken right there, right? Like she would have been. That would have been the end of her. Indeed. So good, dude. Indeed. I mean, it's just again, it's like probably as far as designing a character and making it visually interesting and making it like a proper surprise, like a character should be. Like that's she's probably top of the charts for Kill Bill. Like Go Go is just, and she's iconic. You know, you have uh, Bill, you have um, the yellow jumpsuit, you have like the katana, you have some stuff in the second one. Gogo's like one of the Kill Bill icons. She's on that, she's just one of the silhouettes on that poster. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's like, you know, and of course, like referencing like classic movies like Battle Royale and stuff like that, but like what she was pulled straight from. But again, tying in those, those, influences but also making it feel distinctly japanese you know what i mean this is a this is a world that's rooted out of asian countries you know later on we'll see pai mei we'll meet pai mei in volume two and we'll see the chinese connection but this whole world springs from the east and you want to make it as japanese as possible in this case this is how you do it you know what i mean it's just like it's storytelling 101 man it's so not only is it fun but it just works yeah i totally agree and as we get towards the crescendo at the end, we see that beautiful blue silhouette scene of everyone fighting, which is probably my favorite visual flair in the whole film. I love that. Reminds me a little bit of that scene in The Last Jedi, uh, the throne room scene, actually. Oh, yeah, it does. Compl complimentary of that scene. But then, of course, Lucy Liu is scalped in the snow, and we're left to wonder where we go from here. Now, you know, and I don't, so it's exciting to... I'm going to be watching this in the coming days as we record the next episode. I'm so. really excited for you to see it. It's very yeah, good. I'm excited, to it. I'm excited about it as well. Your, your instrument is quite impressive. <laughs> is the only other thing I wanted to say. Thank you. But yeah, Dave, that's, uh, do you have anything else you wanted to say before we wrap it up? You know what? It's exciting. I just, I wanted to see if Tarantino was kind of staying true to that thing of being like 10 and out. Like he's going to do his 10th movie, the one after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then he was going to jet. And he's the whole idea behind that, like not jumping the shark and leave them wanting more. I think that's, you know, we talk about that a lot uh, pretty often on the show. And that's the idea behind that. And he talked about it about a half a year ago with Rogan, and he's maintaining that. But the exciting thing in having this conversation, he's still talking about his 10th movie being Kill Bill 3. And you talked about this scene before, Kyle. I don't know if you knew this, but the idea behind where he would like to take Kill Bill 3 is for Vanita Green's daughter, the Nikki character, to come back and avenge her, her mother's death which we see early in Kill Bill Volume 1. That'd be awesome. I like that. And yeah. that whole thing of like having, he talks about having Maya Hawke, who plays Robin in Stranger Things. He's She's Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's daughter, playing 
little BB, the bride's daughter, the bride and Bill's daughter. And, you know, having like a 21-year-old BB and the bride on the run from Nikki, I think she was saying like, I think Tarantino was kind of toying with the idea of like bringing L Driver. Was it L Driver? Was it L Driver? No, I think the uh, Sophie Fatale character as kind of like the mentor and her and Nikki sort of going after the bride and her daughter as like an act of revenge. And how cool would that be to go out for him to go out by doing a trilogy? You know what I mean? Yeah, by making be, like the, the, you know, by basically bringing the story to a close. It'd be super, super cool, man. I would love that. I was thinking that it would be cool for him to, since he's such a an ensemble director, he likes reusing actors. It was to just gather everyone. There the you go. Movie, yeah. Which I think would be cool. Whatever it was, like to make sure you get all the people you're identified with. Your John Travolta and your Uma Thurman. See, that you know, would like, be cool. And, and Brad Pitt. And like, just get every, every, like, it would be cool, you know, to just go through that line and and pick up some people along the way that you've used time and time again. Samuel Jackson. Vivica Fox. Yeah. It would be cool to like get all of them involved in like the final project and some He's so good way. at like, you know, well, that's what we talked about in the mid nineties. I was like the, the, on the tip of our tongues. Like, wow, this guy's going to pull actors and actresses out of obscurity and like give them a second lease on their careers. And like, I was watching some Pulp Fiction scenes the other day. It was so clever with that. Not only were you taking a great actor in John Travolta, an iconic actor, right? From the seventies and John Travolta and putting him back in the spotlight here you are making him dance again. Like, it's fucking, it's brilliant. Like, yeah, not only are you going to put John, bring John Travolta back, but you're going to make him dance, which is what he was known for. It's like, that's just the kind of clever shit that no one else was doing. You know what I mean? And, and you made it work. Definitely. So, you know, like with, with, Iconic. with Kill, I mean, it's, he's so good at that. He's so good at a, at a lot of things, I feel like. But with, with Kill Bill, it was just a treat. It was just really a treat to go back and see it again. And, what else did I want to say about it? Just really like, it's one of the great swordplay movies too. Like that that final battle in the House of Blue Leaves where we see the bride really get her revenge on Oren and her entourage. There's some really iconic shit in there. Like that aerial shot of like, she's surrounded by like 50 dudes and she just raises her sword a little bit and they all go back. Like just stuff like that is what makes it memorable like makes it really joyous it's like as somebody who who really appreciates filmmaking it's like those are the little touchstones the little tarantino's touchstones that make it special and yeah dude i'm so excited for you to see volume two because you know what you get in volume two that you didn't get as much in volume one dialogue you get a lot more of that really awesome tarantino dialogue and character you know those exchanges between characters where it's not even, even there is there's some great set piece fighting and stuff like that, but you get, and there's a there's a great one actually that I just remembered in volume two, but you get a lot of that. You know, you get a lot of that conversation, you get a lot of that great writing. So and we're talking about it soon, so I'm really excited for that. Me too. That's next up on our list. So yeah, that was a fun conversation. Glad we watched it on to volume two shortly. Dagan, as we always do with knockback, let's end this episode with a dad joke. All right, I got one here from James. Now, James was a little surprised I hadn't used this one already because it's really one that he feels like Colin would appreciate. I agree. Okay. Okay. So, James, via Twitter, I don't think I ever shared this one, but remind me if I did. Kyle, this is a G.I. Joe joke for you. What happens to Cobra Commander 
when he stays out in the sun too long. Hmm, I don't know. He gets a Zartan. <laughs> That's horrible. That's a horrible one. <laughs> James, I was hoping he would like it. I can't. James, I could tell the joke, but I can't make him like it. No, you can't. You can I'm lead powerless. a horse to water. Well, no, I, was, I appreciate that. Very obscure joke and uh, pretty rough. But we appreciate <laughs> We appreciate the effort nonetheless. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for your love, uh, kindness, and support of, of this show because I can really tell that you're putting in a lot of hours, a lot of time oh, to get into this all right. So we it's always thank work. the audience for the, love, for the love, kindness, and support, but thank you for the, the attention you pay to this show. It's, it, it, it isn't. I really, this is a, really a highlight for me. This is a highlight for me. Uh, so, uh, Thank you, Dave. Thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of all things Last Stand Media and Knockback, Sacred Symbols, Defining Duke, all the rest. Come support us on uh, Patreon if you can. Buy merch, laststandmedia.shop. Find us on Discord, etc. and so on. We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Tom Quinn, Sorta Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Joshua Rids, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Howell, Alan Rui, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukem, Jim Bob 56, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Galja of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris. Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ali Fritz, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Damon W., Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R. Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Joey Rawlings, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton K, Brian W. Rath, Alan Trembley, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, James Kinslow III, Will Caldwell, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Petro. Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondoliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.